appreciate the worship team this morning and the songs and the the young people participating in that and all of the work that the young people did this week with VBS was such a blessing and just to see them being active in the Lord's work is encouragement to our hearts and um, it's a blessing to them, it's a blessing to us and it's a blessing to the kids and and uh, the Lord is, I, I believe the Lord is very honored by it and so thankful for all of that that took place this week. We're glad that you're here this morning. If you notice someone that's normally here that's not, uh, take a minute uh, when you go home today and pray for them and just hold them up before the Lord. Know uh, they may be traveling, they may be sick, there could be a number of different reasons for them not being here, but just uh, make it a point to um, pray for each other and the, the Lord would bring whatever deliverance is needed and whatever guidance is needed as well. Hebrews chapter number two, uh, so far we've, we looked at the theme of this passage, we'll read, we'll read in a moment verses nine through 18, the theme is that Jesus is a better fit, and ultimately he's a better fit than angels, and uh, the, the comparison is to the Old Testament, the, um, the activities of the angels in the Old Testament, and um, they specifically represent religion and laws legalism, if you will, and, and how it all, all connected together. Angels represent that in the Old Testament. So ultimately what's being said here in this passage of Scripture is Jesus is better than religion. And I don't mean religion in the sense of true religion as is described in James 1, but religion in the sense of laws, rules, and regulations that if you follow these things, you're going to be okay. Kind of the... the um, uh, award system. You, you do certain things and then God awards you for doing those things. And then, and then um, the laws are just rules and regulations. So Jesus is better than those things. And we're going to look this morning at why Jesus is better than those things and why we have a tendency, we have a tendency as human beings to run to rules and regulations, and we have a tendency as human beings to run to religion. And, um, and why, at the end of the day, we ultimately should run to Jesus Christ. Uh, he really is the only one who can bring deliverance, amen? He's the only deliverer. These things cannot deliver us. And ultimately, they were never meant to deliver us. They were meant to show our need for a deliverer, and then we would run to Jesus. So with, with that being said, let's read. If you'll follow along with me, we'll begin reading in verse 9 of Hebrews 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And if you're just, if you're taking it, if, you're, if you write in your Bibles, just write Psalm 22, 22 next to that phrase or that verse because it comes directly from that psalm, which is the psalm of Christ's crucifixion. So in other words, what you can draw from that is, is that all of the surrounding um, events that are connected to this text are, are the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and how that makes him better 
than the uh, laws and religion. The Bible says in verse number 13, and again, I put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, for he helps the offspring of Abraham. And I'll just stop there for a moment and make a comment on that. The offspring of Abraham refers to those who are of the faith. Uh, it's not referring to humanity as a whole, but it's referring to humanity in relation to those who are um, the children of God and the children of Abraham. Galatians connects those two together. He says, if you are a person of faith, then you are a child of Abraham. It doesn't make us Jewish by our genealogies. We don't become genealogically connected to Abraham, but by faith, we are connected to Abraham because he is the father of those who are faithful. So when it says that we're the offspring of Abraham, what he's saying is, is that you've become a child of Abraham by faith, and therefore, the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, we become an inheritor of that promise. And that's what's important to remember about this, this, this simple phrase here. The Bible goes on to say, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make, to make propitiation for the sins of his people, or the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Again, the theme of this passage is that Jesus Christ is better. We've talked about the fact that this uh, portion of Scripture doesn't necessarily only relate to salvation. The reality of it is, is that whatever difficulty that you're dealing with in life, uh, remember these few things. Number one, remember sin is at the root. It doesn't necessarily mean that your sin is the cause of your troubles, but all troubles are a result of sin. And we can, we can pinpoint every difficulty in life, every sickness, every pain, every suffering, every war, we can pinpoint it back to sin in some capacity. Even if it means we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and say that at some point the earth was perfect, the world was perfect, and sin entered into the world, and then because of that, problems came. So sin is always the root of every problem that we face. If we remember that, we'll also note that Jesus Christ is the only one who can solve our problems. If sin is the root, we know that Jesus Christ is the only one who can solve the problem of sin. So if we want to get back to the root, what we realize is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can solve the problem of sin. So we have the problem of sin in relation to salvation, the problem of sin that is what results in eternal death. And we know that Jesus Christ is a better Savior. We have the problem of sin that results in our challenges in life, that results in difficulties, that results in conflict, that results in a number of different things. And we know that Jesus Christ is a better deliverer or a better helper. I would lean towards defining this passage of Scripture as being more associated with those needing daily help than it be associated with those needing salvific help or being, needing salvation. I would say that it leans in that direction. 
The reason I say that is because the book of Hebrews is written to a group of believers, uh, Jewish believers, who are probably in many ways new converts, who are struggling with the temptation to move back into the ceremonial law, to move back under the legalistic system that they found much comfort in in the Old Testament. Remember all the laws that the Jewish people um, followed they, they found comfort, they found peace in, those, in, in keeping those laws. Now they've become a follower of Jesus Christ. They've submitted their life to Jesus. They've accepted that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. But now they're facing the temptation of dragging some of those, some of those legalisms with them into their new Christian life. Carrying with them some of those traditions, some of those things that... Um, in many ways, made, made them feel comfortable. Look with me at, at our text here, at, um, verse 14 and 15, for just a moment. He says, um, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And I want you to notice verse 15, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what you see here is the, is the, reason, why, the reason why these people lived in slavery to rules and regulations and religion was because they were afraid. There was something that made them fearful, and that thing that made them fearful caused them to naturally move towards rules and regulations and systems. This is something that is, is our natural tendency. When we have something that we are afraid of, we put systems into place, right, to help us deal with the fear that we have. We put something into place that gives us some kind of a comfort in our heart that we no longer have to fear that thing that is so fearful for us. Something that has caused us great fear and, and obviously eternal condemnation from God is something that can really cause a person a great deal of fear. So the Lord writes to these people, these Jewish people, not to let these systems come back into play because their fear is, re, their fear is reuniting, which is leading them back into bondage, which is leading them back into doubt. And there are three things that he mentions here in this text that, are, that I, I think were, were basics of fear in that world and also our basics of fear in our world today. Number one is suffering. We fear suffering, don't we? Anybody in here fear suffering? Just shake your head. Show me you're alive this morning. We fear suffering. How many of us fear death? How many of us are looking forward to dying? Death is, a, death is something that we all have a certain fear of, right? A certain phobia of. And the last thing is temptation or, or another way of saying that it is trials or testings. We, we fear these things, and we all have to face them, but we fear these things greatly. And again, our natural tendency, based upon the fear that is in front of us, is to revert back to something that we find comfort in or something that we can control. We take on something that we can be in charge of because then we start to feel comfort again because we feel like we're in charge of our destiny now. 
We put some kind of a system in place, some kind of a religious system, some kind of a list of things to do, and as long as you do these things, you can walk through life and feel really sure of yourself that you're going to be fine when it all comes down to the end. What you do in creating that system that makes you feel really comfortable is you eliminate the necessity to walk through life by, by faith. You eliminate the, comf- the, 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 um, the somewhat, uh, the reality of the unknown, if you will, of relinquishing the unknown into God's hands and trusting him with the unknown. You, you create, we create, not you, we create a system of rules and regulations that helps us feel confident that we're back in control again. And, and what's, what's interesting is, is that most religious systems have... All religious systems have a different way of feeling, feeling out their comfort zone. But at the end of the day, religious systems, rules, and regulations are about us entering into a state of security that is not built around trusting in somebody else. It's about us creating a state of security that is built around us. It's built around something that we do or something that we know or something that we have confidence in. It's built around us. It's not built around saying, Lord, I have no confidence in me at all, but I have all confidence in you. This is our our natural tendency in life. And here's what the Jewish people were doing. They were taking the gospel, Jesus Christ saves, and they were saying, we trust that, but we want our security as well. So we're going, to pull these, we're going to pull these regulations into our life so that we can feel secure so that just in case, just in case things fail, we'll be okay because we have our system of security. This is the thing, again, where something we feel safe, something we feel in control of our destiny with, and we live in honestly if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we live in light of that system. We live in the comforts of that system more than we live in the comforts of the Lord. Isn't that true? Isn't that true for a lot of systems, religious systems? Think about this. I wrote these few things down. Maybe this will help us. How many of you would rather, if you were to be asked the question, how many of you would rather, right, How many of you would rather be in a lion's den with lions all around you and it's just you, lions, and God? Or would you rather be in a lion's den in a lion-proof cage with you, a lion-proof cage, and God? Where would you fit into that picture? You would want the cage, wouldn't you? We would naturally want the cage to protect us from the lions, because truly, when we're tested at the end of the day, our faith in God is, is it's strong, but it's just not strong enough to get us to walk into the lion's den, is it? Or how about the fiery furnace? Let's, would you rather? <laughs> would you rather enter into a fiery furnace, three young guys, probably in their late teenage years, you, fire that's heated seven times hotter, that killed the guys that threw you in there, And God, or would you rather enter into that fiery furnace with you, the fire, and fireproof suits, and God? You would rather, we would rather 
have those securities, wouldn't we? We would rather have something that we can humanly control that we're not walking into it 100% in our hearts saying, God, if you don't deliver me, I'm done. That's a fearful place to be, isn't it? That's a fearful place to live, isn't it? To walk through life in such a way where you where you enter into difficult circumstances and situations with, with, with absolutely no human way possible for you to get out on your own. I think of, um, I think of Hebrews chapter number 11. is a passage of scripture where you have a number of different people who lived completely by faith and had nothing to help them, humanly speaking. And we can look at others as well. David against Goliath, would you, rather, would you rather go up against a huge giant with a rock, with five rocks and a sling, or a machine gun, right? Would you rather go up with five rocks and, and talking to God, or would you rather have a machine gun? And you know, God is, it's okay that God is there. It's almost like the rich young ruler who's like, Lord, I'll add you to my program, but to totally lean on you to sell all that I have and give the money to the poor, forget that. This stuff is important to me. This is what the Lord is warning these Jewish people about. It is bringing their safety net into Christianity. It is bringing their, their, their comfortable things into Christianity so that they can feel safe they can feel secure. They can feel right. And ultimately, in all of those things, they've forsaken the one who is safety, who is security, and who is right. He's right about everything. And we're right about, about maybe 50%. We're not even that, maybe that much. But you see how easy it is to build a system. How many religious people believe strongly that their system is right? I mean, honestly, there are systems out there where people are killing each other because they believe their system is so right. The problem is, is they're trusting in themselves. We're not about a system. We're about a person who has done everything for us. We, 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 are, we are about him. And therefore, we have freedom that the world does not know and the world does not experience. But in the same sense, folks, we have this, we have this, we have this overwhelming temptation, honestly, to draw these things right back into our world. We as a church have the temptation of becoming that type of a church. That's more about what, who we are than it is about what, who he is. We, we, are, we are in danger of that. Why? Because we want to feel safe. How many of you believe it's safe to trust in the Lord? Raise your hand if you believe it's safe to trust in the Lord. How many of you, put your hand down, how many of you have lots of safety nets in your life? It's not, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, there's something wrong with that connection, isn't there? Here, here's what the Lord is, is going to tell us. Let me just, I'm going to try to follow a pattern that I've set forth here. Um, I want us to see something this morning from this passage of Scripture. I think that's very, very powerful. The Lord lays out for us this, um, this, 
expression, this, this work that he's accomplished, that he's done on our behalf. And, he, and he's trying to, what, ultimately what he's trying to do is he's trying to get the, these people who are struggling with wanting to bring these systems back in, he's trying to say to them, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't need anything else. You don't need to bring anything back in. You don't need to drag any, any securities. The last thing you want to do, he even says this. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 10.38. He says this, but if the righteous one, but the righteous one shall live by faith, but if he, but if he shrinks back, if he, if he goes backwards, in other words, here is somebody who is possibly living by faith, the claiming to be a Christian, and they, and they go back into this system of safety and security and, and not trusting in the Lord. He says, if he shrinks back, the Lord says, I have no, I have no pleasure in him. This is a, a real danger. The life of living by faith is a, is a risky life. The life of living by faith is a is dangerous life. It's, it's a life that sometimes doesn't know what's beyond the next step. But it's a life that trusts in the Lord. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians, chapter um, 4. We'll just read a few verses out of the book of Galatians here. Give you a, a, a bigger picture, possibly, of this. Galatians 4, verse 7 he says, verse, let's just start in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crabbing, crying, Abba, Father. There's not really a more intimate cry than that cry of Abba, Father. It's, it's, this, is, this is an intimate connection. So he says, here you have this wonderful and marvelous relationship with Jesus, with God, through Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God is, is crying out in your hearts, Abba, Father, and here's what he goes immediately to after saying that. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Again, we go back to our text. It says that because of fear, they became, they became lifetime slaves. The more we fear, the more we move into slavery, because all of these systems, all they do, we think they make us safe and free, right? All these systems do is they just put us into bondage. They put us into a prison where we're not truly free, although we feel safe and we feel good because we have this system in place. We're totally in bondage to these systems. And ultimately, our security that we have in these systems is a false security, isn't it? It, it will fall short. It will, it will fail. This is what he's warning them about in the book of Galatians. He says um, in verse number 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored for you in vain. And then chapter five and verse one, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
And again, you just go to Hebrews 2. He's talking about that same yoke of slavery. He's talking about this, these systems that get set up because people are afraid. The more we can get people to fear, our government does this on a regular basis. The more we can get people to fear, the more we can get people to enter into our systems that keep them safe. And it's okay when it's done in a non-religious way, but when it creeps into our Christianity and we begin to follow into systems and not into a relationship with Christ, those systems will ultimately be what condemns us. That's what, the, that's what the writer of this book is all about. He's like, don't move back into your systems because your systems will ultimately fail you. And we know that as Christians, as true Christians, that we cannot, the Lord will not let us move back completely into those systems. But the warning is, the warning is not lost to that. The warning is very, very serious to that. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, the just or Christians will live, will walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. So what we want to see this morning is, is why is Christ better when it comes to all of my struggles in life, all of my heartaches in life, my salvation, the difficulties that I face in life, why is Christ better? And we're going to look at three things. I'm going to just review the one. We're going to look at the last two, and, and we'll be done. If you want to, in your own time, look at where this text comes from, it comes from Isaiah chapter number 8. And you'll find the exact phrase repeated here. Isaiah chapter number 8, read the entire chapter, and it will give you a prophetic view of what you're seeing here in Hebrews 2. And then read Revelation chapter number 7, and it will give you the fulfillment of what you're seeing here in Hebrews 2. As I, I mentioned several weeks ago, Hebrews is kind of that reminder of what was told in the Old Testament and what is fulfilled in Revelation when the Lord comes back to set up his kingdom and to have a place for his people. So here are some things. There are three things, again, that we fear more than anything else. Suffering, death. I, mean, I think death would be kind of a, 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 a big one. And then... Um, and then trials or tribulations or, or, or temptation that we face. Go with me back to our text. I hope this is setting in this morning. I, I, I really want, it, I want this to come across. I want to be clear with it. So please just listen and bear with me as we go through this. Here's what the Lord says. The end of verse 13, he says, Behold, I and, my, and the children God has given me, this is, a, this, is a, um, this is a climactic uh, stage in this passage of Scripture. In other, in other words, the Lord is standing there with his children. You'll notice in the verses before, they've been through great heartache. They've been through great trials. They have, they have succeeded together. Okay, the Lord has built this success through trials with his people. And now he's standing there with them and he's, he's confidently presenting them to, to God. He's confidently saying, here, here I am with my, with my family, with my children. In verse number 14, he's going to go on to describe these, these last two fears that we face. And, and, and remember, if you just go back a few verses, why, why is suffering, we talked about suffering and why Jesus is a better fit for when we suffer. And we talked about the fact that he paved a way to begin with, right? He 
He broke through. He paved a way for us to get where he was taking us. Uh, he got out in front um, and, and uh, established a pattern for us, and he created a brotherhood in that process. He created a connection for us in that process, and it was all done in trust of the Lord, which is how we ought to live our lives as well. So suffering is easier because the Lord has paved a way for us to suffer. He showed us how to do it. He showed us it's, it's okay, it's going to be fine. It's, 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 it's almost like, in many ways, it's like somebody going in front of you, right? And then they go in front of you, and they go through some difficulty, and they go through some heartache, like 2 Corinthians 1 deals with, and, and you see them make it to the other side. And then you see that same trouble coming up in your own life, and you, and you think, I wonder if I'll be able to make it. I wonder if I'll be able to get through it. I wonder if I'll be able to make it through this heartache or this hardship, right? Okay? And what happens is, is when you see that fact that there's another person that has made it, you can look to that person, you can go to that person, you can depend upon that person because they've already been through it, right? They've already been through that suffering. And so you know, hey, they got through it and they got a smile on their face still. This is where Hebrews talks about in 12 and verse 2 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he, Jesus, so whatever suffering you're going through right now, whatever pain you're dealing with in your life, remember this, Jesus has gone through it first. He paved a way. He blasted through <coughs> the mountain so that you could walk through the mountain. He, bla- he, he built the bridge over the ocean so that you could drive over the ocean. You see, Jesus Christ paved the way so that when we go through difficulty, we will see there's somebody that's already been through that difficulty. And he's not only somebody, but he went through that difficulty perfectly. Now, let's take it to the next level, death. Because that's the second thing that he mentions here. He mentions death. In verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since, since God's children are flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood. He partook of the same thing. He became a man so that when he suffered, he suffered as a man. When he died, he died as a man. When he was tempted, he was tempted as a man. Why is that? Because when he suffered, he was suffering to pave a way for us. When he died, he was dying for us. And when he was tempted, he was tempted to establish a pattern by which we deal with temptation. It wouldn't have made any sense if God would have came to earth as an angel to do all of these things for men, would it? It was necessary that God be a man, that Jesus Christ become a man, so that men could look to him for deliverance in each one of these fearful moments. Again, the fear is meant to drive us to systems. That's what we do naturally. But what we have to do is that fear has to drive us to Jesus. It's the opposite. Fear not driving us to systems, but fear driving us to Christ. So he says here that through death, he he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who were thought fear of death, who were through fear of death, subject to lifelong slavery. So the second thing that we're going to look at is the fact that his death was fitting for us. And why was it fitting? We'll look at that here in a moment. Remember this. The Bible says in Psalm 23 and verse 4, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, amen? For thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So as I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that the Lord is with me, okay? But this just isn't any Lord, all right? So first of all, we need to understand this. This is a valley with a shadow in it, okay? And that shadow is death. Are, are shadows sometimes fearful? Can a shadow be fearful? Okay, if you're ever walking up on a corner and you see the shadow and it's just this huge thing on the, because, it's, because it's so far away and the light is hitting it a certain way, it makes it look enormous, right? And you're walking up and you could be just like shaking feverishly, right? And that shadow is very, very scary because it takes something that's really small and makes it look really, really big. So I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So what makes that shadow no longer scare me anymore? The shadow is still there, but what makes that shadow no longer scare me anymore? Okay, now get this. This is so important. The moment somebody walks around the corner and sees what's creating that shadow, that shadow is no longer fearful, is it? Once you realize the insignificance of what is causing the shadow, you no longer have to fear when you're walking around the corner. Here's the picture. Jesus Christ is the person that walked around the corner and saw or identified what was creating the shadow, so therefore, we no longer have to fear. We no longer fear because we see what's around the corner. We fear because Jesus saw what was around the corner. We saw Jesus didn't only see what was around the corner. The Bible says that he destroyed what was around the corner. He annihilated it. He, 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 did, he did it in. Jesus Christ revealed and, 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 and exposed the insignificance of the shadow of death. But it takes somebody to go around that corner and deal with what's creating that shadow so that we can know that the shadow is not scary at all. And it's, the Bible says it's the shadow that drives us to fear, that drives us to systems. We see the shadow, we get afraid, and we begin to create systems to protect us from the shadow that is fearful because we forgot to see the one who's already walked around the corner and saw the insignificance of what's causing the shadow. There is no fear of the shadow if you're trusting in the one who has already overcome. He knows the insignificance of the shadow. He's been there. That is the whole picture here. Jesus Christ faced the shadow and he destroyed it. Genesis 3 talks about him, him planting his heel on its head, bruising his heel, but bruising the head of the one that was causing the shadow. The one that was causing so much fear has been defeated. The game has already been won. The victory has been accomplished. There is no need to fear anymore. There is no need to walk through life afraid. It has been won. The shadow has been destroyed and defeated. There's, we still fear it, but we, we shouldn't. But we fear it and we move to religion or to systems or to rules and regulations to help us feel safe from it. <coughs> it's like we walk around 
We see that shadow there, and we, we start to build up all of, our, all of our armory so that when we get around that corner, we can really fight that shadow. It's already been defeated. We just trust the one who has defeated him. We trust Jesus. And that shadow becomes very, very insignificant to us. There's no longer a fear of that thing. And, and, I, and I, I would suggest to you this morning that there is nothing more fearful than dying. There is nothing more fearful than dying. But he says here, here Jesus is. He's already conquered that. He's already been there. The reality this morning is this. Jesus Christ is alive today. Amen? Can you believe that? Do you believe that he died too? That should build your confidence so much in the fact that death has no power. The same death that he experienced, we will experience, and the same resurrection that he experienced, we will experience. It no longer should cause us to be afraid. Jesus has already won that battle. He's already been there. Here, here's what he says about this, this um, he says what he's accomplished. He's destroyed death, the Bible says. The death of Christ is the death of death. The death of Christ has, de- has left death powerless. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm gonna turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. You're familiar with it. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to, but you can if you would like 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection passage of Scripture in the Bible. Listen to what he says in verse 54. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass that which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is defeated. Death has lost the battle. You no longer have to make systems in your life to protect you from death. Jesus is the one that's accomplished that. And it's not that you will not face death. It's that you know that you will resurrect again. That facing death is not fearful because facing death is not the end. Listen to what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he somewhat mocks death, doesn't he? He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What is it that gives you power? And then he says this. The sting of death is sin, right? And the strength of sin is a system. It's the systems that we create that make sin so powerful. When Jesus Christ is the focus of our life, sin has no power over us because fear has no power over us. We are free from these things. He destroys death. Jesus destroyed death. He defeated it once and for all, final. The Bible tells us in John that when Jesus defeated death, that one day everyone who has died will raise from the dead. Some will raise to eternal condemnation because they have rejected Christ and others will raise to eternal glory because they have accepted Christ. He destroys death. The second thing that he says is he defeats the devil. He he not only destroys death, but he defeats the devil in this process. 
He wins over the devil, and the devil is just a representation of all evil. He wins over him. He sends the devil to his ultimate demise. Revelation 20 and verse number 10 is the end of all of this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil has already lost His final condemnation is yet to come. Not only that, but he goes on to say, he defeats the death, he defeats, destroys death, he defeats the devil. Number three, he satisfies God's anger. Jesus Christ's death satisfies God's anger. It says in verse number, um, verse number 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins. You say, what does that word propitiation mean? It simply means this, that God was very angry with sinners and Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. You know something, folks, this morning, God cannot be angry with his children. You say, why can't, I mean, I feel like God's angry with me every day. It is impossible for God to be angry with his children because the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath for his children completely. If God gets angry with his children, it then minimizes the work that God's son accomplished. God cannot be angry with us. Does anger, does somebody being angry with us move us to fear? And then does that fear move us to creating systems? How many of you have ever built walls around yourself because somebody got angry with you, you got afraid, and you built walls? Have you ever thought that the devil has caused you to build walls around yourself to prevent you from being in communion with God? By saying, he's mad at you. He's not mad at you. This is a deception of the devil. God's wrath has been completely satisfied according to scripture on behalf of all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And therefore, God's children have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear at all. He satisfied the wrath of God. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of God Listen to this verse. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He satisfied God's wrath. Number four, in regards to his death as fitting, he set the fearful free. He set us free. He set us free from fear. We no longer have to be afraid anymore. That fear leads to sin, or that fear is sin ultimately, but that fear leads to sin and it leads to systems and it leads to trusting in anything and everything other than Jesus. That's the tool of the devil. That's how the devil keeps his people in bondage is by causing them to live in fear. Jesus Christ set us free from fear. We can go through life unafraid. We can go through life totally unafraid because Jesus Christ has satisfied God. Do we live that way? Do we believe that way? Do we act that way? Do we preach that way to people? 
There is no fear in this life. There's nothing to fear. You've got God on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have nothing to fear at all. God's our friend. God's our father. But yet, we're challenged each day to move from fear to systems. And the more systems we have in life that protect us, the less we need the Lord. It's not that Daniel might not have had a few prayers in the lion's den if he was in a lion-proof cage. But do you think Daniel's prayers would have been the same as it was when he wasn't in the lion-proof cage? He wasn't in a lion-proof cage. His kids are going to go home and be like, Dad, does he in the lion-proof? No, he wasn't in the lion-proof cage. But can you imagine how his prayers would have been different if he had had some kind of human security? The life of a Christian is not meant to be based in security in things that we can see. It's meant to be based in insecurity in the things that we can see and security in the thing that we can't see. That's what faith is. The Bible even says this. If you can see faith, if you can see, if you can see, in, in other words, if you're trusting in something you see, it's not faith. It has to be trusting in something that you can't see. He set us free. We're no longer slaves, eternal slaves, whatever, temporary slaves. We have been set free from that slavery. That's what the Lord has done for us. The next thought this morning is, you know, we're going to say the next thought. We're at that time. I'm going to close. I want to just encourage you this morning. I want to challenge your heart. There's nothing to fear anymore. Fear, death has no dominion over us, the Bible says. Romans tells us that over and over again. Death has no power over us. We don't have to fear death, and if we don't have to fear death, there really isn't anything else that we need to fear. Next week, I'll talk a little bit about temptation, how that we no longer have to be afraid of temptation. And the reason for it is we don't have to fear suffering, we don't have to fear death, and we don't have to fear temptation for one reason and one reason alone is because somebody went in front of us. That's what this is all about. It's the fact that somebody went in front of you and therefore you no longer have to be afraid. It's keeping your eyes on the one who is in front of you. And when you lose sight of the one who is in front of you, you will naturally build systems to protect you from what is causing you that fear. Lord, please help us. Keep us, keep us Lord, in, in always focusing in on your accomplishments, always dependent on your mercy and your grace and your goodness. Help us to avoid the temptation to move into systems, regulations and rules, and we're really just securities in the things that we can see and control. Help us not to have a need to be in control, but Lord, help us to have a need to be in dependence on the one who is in control. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today as we go home. Help these truths to permeate our hearts in Christ's name. 